And in fact, you must know yourself from going through all of the things that you did, you know, cause and effect becomes almost, uh, a, it's, um, it's a blind really. We're, we're programmed with it because of Newtonian physics, everything we grew up with, you do this, you get that. Even the magic, you do this ritual, you get that happen. I'm not, I really, I'm not so sure anymore. I think it's a lot more fluid. I, almost like a fluid electrical field, everything. What is this phenomena that we've been experiencing? Is there some intelligence coordinating all of this? Is whatever we've been interacting with located here on the Pennyroyal? Is it drawing all of these people and events to this place? The language we use to talk about all of this fails us. It feels impossible to find the right words to communicate to another person about any of it. These things, which seem to defy reason and causality, I believe, reveal the machinery and mechanisms of something wondrous, albeit terrifying in its strangeness. To say the inner workings of the unseen world would infer that it's hidden, but it's not trying to hide. We simply can't see it. This phenomena, or whatever it is that we've been interacting with, we are not the only ones having these experiences. There are so many others experiencing the phenomena themselves, in their own way and from their own place. And all of the guests on this show, last season and this season, have been having their own experiences, discovering their own mysteries and magic. At the end of most interviews that I conducted over the last year and a half, I asked guests of the show what they thought the phenomena was and what role magic played in their lives especially in terms of enchantment and re-enchantment. This episode is a collection of those perspectives on magic and what the phenomena is and how we can rediscover enchantment in a world where it's easily lost. Kiki Dombrowski and I discussed why these messages and communications might be coming from somewhere else and where that somewhere else might be, and also how the phenomena relates to initiation. I mean, obviously, it must be something we're interacting with. We're all walking on these pathways. We're, we're interacting with spirit of place. We're, we're being influenced by symbols and messages. I think it's just taken on a different costume in 2021. You know, maybe it is technological, maybe it is on the highways, but I also think it's really, really valuable to reconnect with 
with earth and, and, and natural spaces. So while we talk about visiting Foamhenge or, you know, another roadside attraction like Chuck E. Cheese, I think, you know, it's also important to also say, I, I need to go visit the mounds. I need to go visit Serpent Mound. I need to go go to Old Stone Fort. I, I need to, to see how these people connected with math and where they were looking for patterns. Something feels a little bit more pure about that as well. And maybe that's just, you know, my perspective. I, you know, as being somebody who's not technologically inclined. But I also think too that the phenomenon, we, we started by saying that if we, if, we, if we look at it, it looks back. I, I think there's an element to that too. You know, like my perspective automatically when I thought of Amy's story, or Pamela's story, I automatically went one direction that somebody else might say that, that doesn't make sense to me. But to me, it's like a real truth. It's like, oh my God, this is the key. I guess in a way, something that's really spectacular about this phenomenon is that it's inspiring people. And it's inspiring people to still, you know, remain at the crossroads, have one foot in this technological world of highways and and traffic but also have a foot in the other world where we're still fascinated by high strangeness and mystical experiences and and having moments where we we feel we've we've been given a sign so i like i i think that the phenomenon is is a really special opportunity to 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 still allow spirit and sensitivity and, and magic and wonder and imagination be alive in in what feels like a place that is trying to strangle that. So I'm, I'm really thankful for, for what you do because it, it gets me to think, it gets people to think. I, like I said, like just in preparation for this conversation, I had so many aha moments that are going to inspire me and, and, and persuade some of the things I study and write and believe. That's going to be the same way for anybody else that, that tunes in and listens to this. They're, you know, they're going to play, play a role in this too. But the interesting thing is, though, is, is about initiation. Everybody has to experience initiation, but you still do it alone. So it's really interesting. You know, you have to make the choice. Nobody can, nobody is going to, to do it for you. You have to, to do it alone. So it's almost like it's a very, it is, it's a very liminal space where, you know, you're, you're very technical. We're in a modern world. We're, you know, having our groceries and, and products dropped off at our front door. But then also we really want to somehow have this supernatural experience to remind us that there are still things that cannot be easily written away in an academic book somewhere. And, and, and the other thing I think too, one of the things I've always noticed because I'm obviously, I'm not, I'm not from the South, I'm a, I'm a Yankee, but one of the things I've always said too is, is, is maybe one of the things that, that would be beneficial is to see neighborhoods where libraries and community centers and schools are the main feature on the main road as opposed to the big churches. You know, it's like, I, I remember I had that feeling, especially when I was driving through Jackson, Tennessee. I thought, man, I've counted like 12 churches, but I haven't seen an elementary school yet. Maybe of course I took the wrong road so I could kind of have that judgy, you know, perception, but it's not the first time I've felt that way. I don't know how we shift people into trusting 
that you can have an imagination. You could. The, the issue is, is if if you if you open yourself to to reenchantment, if you open yourself to the mystical, if you open yourself to the imaginative, it means that you have to be vulnerable and sensitive. It means that you show that you're like you have like some sort of like child's eye. You have this like unusual view of the world, and be okay with that. In my interview with Josh Kutchin regarding his research and works about the cross-cultural similarities between UFOs, fairies, Bigfoot, and other aspects of the paranormal, he detailed how he's come to the conclusion that while these things are not all the same, they are, at their core, all related parts of the same phenomena. I wonder, you know, well, is it literally, you know, we're talking about like, whether or not aliens are fairies and whatnot, you know, well, things being misplaced, we blame it on the fairies, but is that actually, you know, time slip territory? Is that actually, you know, dimension shifting, you know, to use a pop culture term, like Mandela effect territory, where you like, you blip out of one dimension into the next, you know? I mean, if you look at sort of the way that people talk about the way that we process visual information, like you, you only see like, a very small portion of what you're seeing and everything else is sort of like a, a, a an artifact that's lagging behind in time so like maybe the stuff that we're not looking at just kind of ceases to exist <laughs> unless it has to you know you know far out stoner thoughts yeah I, I think that we don't have a, a good name for what this is and you know i i think people listen to me talk and they think that i'm saying that aliens are fairies or fairies are aliens or you know all these things are the gin or any number of things and that's not really what everyone i'm saying but what i do think is that these are the same family of phenomena the same suite of of beings if you want to talk about it that way because i mean just the similarities are just are just too strong in my opinion you've got you know on a very basic level you've got stuff like you know appearances height you know the fact that they like to abduct people anomalous lights wands but then you have like stuff that gets more and more specific like uh for example like you know alien implants it doesn't sound like there would be a comparison for that in like fairy lore but it was a thing where if you like got if you angered a fairy in you know certain parts of the world uh they would hit you with a blast of air a blustery blast of air that would cause a blister on your skin. This was called the fairy blast. And it would be like a little like pebble or, or you know, a, a, sometimes it was like a tooth of something or a piece of bone or skin, twigs, any number of things, just detritus that would be underneath your skin. And that's such a, to me, it's such a clear reworking of that with the alien implant thing. You know, you've got analogies that can be drawn between changelings of old and you know the human alien hybrids that we talk about uh ufo bases are underground or in mountains and these were places where the fairies used to live you know fairy rings versus crop circles missing time you know you go into fairyland and you would have this uh you'd think that it was you know an hour had passed and you came out and a year had passed which is pretty clearly reflected in the ufo phenomena it just it just the, the the rabbit hole keeps on going deeper and deeper to the extent like you get really granular and it's still holds true in some ways um what i'm thinking of specifically is the fact that you know john keel famously dubbed what he called the wednesday phenomena 
before his death. Now, I don't know if this actually holds true when looking at the ufological data because it's so hard to get like a big amount of, you know, good, reputable cases. But he claimed that he had noticed a pattern that UFO sightings tend to occur on Wednesdays. And that's one of the that's one of the fairy days. You know, it's a, it's the it's the middle day of the week. It's the liminal day, right? <laughs> it's the uh, it's it's uh, it's the it's the day of the fairies, which is also, you know, incidentally, sort of the day of psychopomps, the, the beings that lead you to the other side, you know, Wednesday, Odin's day, or, you know, in Spanish, uh, Wednesday, Miércoles, you know, Mercury's day. But, you know, you keep on looking at this and it's just, I, I can find almost anything in alien lore that has at least a symbolic reflection in fairy folklore and vice versa. I'm, I'm pretty confident to say that. Now, again, I'm not saying that it's all the same thing. Um, it might just be sort of, similarities that are of you know similar like i said like similar families of of whatever these things are but like you know or maybe they just use similar techniques or they have to abide by the same rules but the idea that we're dealing with something that is in, entirely distinct you know extraterrestrials versus fairies is just something that i can't buy into anymore and you know there is that trickster aspect of it fairies would you know, hide your keys. <laughs> Some people still blame <laughs> missing keys on, on various today. They would uh, lead you astray down roads that you had no business being down. You're compelled down there or you find yourself traveling a way that you should know home and you find yourself on a road that you've never been on before. Which, you know, again, it's paralleled in UFO lore, as you just mentioned about traveling down these roads that you're compelled to drive down. That's where you see a flying saucer. But, you know, it's another sort of tricksterish element. And then, you know, it was more sinister, too. Like you would have you would might get blinded on a whim because the fairies were upset with you. Of course, blindness being at least temporary, uh, a side effect of some UFO sightings from possibly ionizing radiation. You have all these things. It's almost like a capriciousness, like a, like a, they were sort of flighty, I guess, uh, fairy folk, which is something that you see very much with, you know, spirit contact in general. It's like, you've got to be very careful about your words and careful about the way that you approach these things. It's the, the ham sandwich fallacy, right? You make a pact with a demon and it says, what do you want? And you say, make me a ham sandwich and poof, you turn into a ham sandwich. Like you've got to be really specific about what you say and the way they treat things. And you know, there was an almost contractual mindedness that the faithful tended to have for sure. Um, that sort of speaks to that, uh, that trickster element. And then, you know, a trickster though is not just about being mischievous or prankish. It's about a lot of other things that fit into that mold from an archetypal level. If you look at tricksters around the world like Hermes or Loki or Coyote or Rabbit or uh, you know any of these other trickster figures in the world, Till Oilenspiegel, they're not only like, you know, playing literal tricks, but they have like, you know, they, they sort of, they're transgressive in general, right? So they're not ashamed to do things that society would deem disgusting or inappropriate. They're generally sexually fluid. They're almost always guards of uh, guardians of the doorways, right? So they're guardians of the thresholds, that, that liminal space, which is why, you know, trolls appear under bridges, <laughs> liminal spaces, fairies are at the forest edge, appearing around twilight. Like you've got all this lim liminal symbolism that you can find. You know, they take babies that are born into the human world, but not yet born into the church. In other words, you know, they're not baptized yet. You find all these similarities time and time again, um, these connections to liminality for sure. You know, I kind of wonder if enchantment isn't something that happens 
I wonder if we're, if we're not really enchanted even our disenchantment. And what I mean by that is like, you take something like, have you ever noticed how, you know, whenever you, I don't know, go to check on something, you know, you're sitting at a, let's say you're sitting at a train tracks and like the train's going on forever. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to get out and check and see how much more of this train's left. And you get out. And as soon as you get out, that's when the train ends, right? <laughs> like, I wonder if little, little gestures like that aren't actually some sort of, of, of magical practice in and of themselves, you know, because these tendencies that always seem to happen that way. Like last time that happened to me and I was like, you know what, this damn train is so long. I'm just going to get out and see how much longer is left. As soon as I did it, sure enough, the end of the train was right there. And I kind of wonder if, you know, we think of those as, you know, just cruel ironies, but I wonder if the, the act of looking and checking on something doesn't in that sort of, you know, observer effect kind of way force the universe's hand sometimes. Marco Visconti, who has assisted us in our research since season one, explained how magic is the development and creation of rituals with the purpose of ordering reality, and that the story has always been the same. These rituals accumulate and coalesce into the story that we tell ourselves to navigate reality. And the, the, what's interesting to me is that, I mean, from a magician's standpoint, or at least my standpoint, that is also the nature of extraterrestrial consciousness, gods, goddesses, uh, spirits. It's always, it's always the same story that repeats itself at higher or lower vibra- by, um, uh, vibrations, and because there is one story in the end, and does this one story is the story of reality, pretty much. So it's it's very interesting that that you know you mentioned that, because it's it's exactly. I mean, that's exactly how I see also the interplay between magic and mysticism, as in like you know it is a fractalization of each other, right? Like you have you use magic and you you try to, um, to you know create rituals and try to order this story which seems chaotic but it's you know like you create little orders and these orders eventually becomes you know fractals of of the bigger picture and as you go higher and higher and you see the big more and more bigger picture you realize it's always the same story that comes again and again robert anton wilson carrie thornley John Keel, Terence McKenna, and many, many more have tried to communicate to others the nature of their interaction with the phenomena, and they've given it various names and descriptions over the years. But in many ways, it's ineffable, especially in that it's often such a personal experience. The synchronicities and connections that possess so much meaning for one person that brings so many elements together into a significant moment for a particular individual don't translate when describing that experience to another person. The phenomena and the associated magic are responsive in a personally reflexive way. During my interview with David Metcalf, he and I discussed that strange reflexivity and how interacting with the phenomena means understanding the experience as a responsive quality of reality. I don't know, when you encounter this 
side of the research, which is like really like being in it. I mean, this is why Pooh Herrick went crazy, you know? I mean, like Pooh Herrick starts seeing hawks and he thinks Horace is there. Well, mm -hmm. and he ties it to the idea of spectra, which is kind of like um, Philip K. Dick's Vallis, right? Or I mean, even Philip K. Dick is a good example of like, once you start kind of like interacting with this strange responsive quality of reality, <laughs> like where do you where does it begin and end like the really skillful people can turn it into something in minute parts you know um but the actual lived experience of it is like incredibly deep and strange it affects your dreams it affects your memories and everything we also talked about the human potential movement and the ways it's connected to re-enchantment i think it's kind of like an awakening you know, I guess that's sort of a cliched term, but in terms of, um, you know, I'm originally from Chicago, moved down here to rural Georgia. And one of the things that I've been really amazed by is how all of the folk traditions of, you know, folk magic and that have been augmented by the hypermediation and hyper communication network that we have. and. An example of that would be the number of people that I've met who are good Christian folk, local, their families have been in this area for like a hundred plus years, right? They start talking about the Book of Enoch and it's because it's on History Channel, right? You have, you have Ancient Aliens, which is this long running show that's super popular and covers all of these different uh, topics. And they watch that show and it fits enough in with the stories that they've heard about, you know, from their family and that, and their sort of like local culture that it, it sort of seamlessly comes in, but it sort of awakens in them these possibilities that may not have been awakened before quite as easily. And, you know, what I mean by that is like, there's a fellow up north of here from Rabin County and Rabin County is where Deliverance was filmed, right? So um, folks who are familiar with that movie, like that picture of rural Georgia, which it's not actually, it's not quite like that, but you know, it's rural, right? Ed Edwards is from Rabin and he grew up right by Dr. Hieronymus, who was um, the famous Hieronymus radionics machine. Um, you know, the, the symbolic Hieronymus, Hieronymus machine. Galen Hieronymus had a summer house up there. And so Ed grew up around him, but Ed's mother was, uh, was like a faith healer. And so his familial tradition and the local tradition of faith healing blended with Galen Hieronymus's, you know, sort of human potential psionic radionic stuff for Ed to develop his psychokinesis. And in the course of Ed's life, he's met with a number of researchers. And over the years, his psychokinesis has been cultivated through these relationships. But it's only been really recently since Facebook and everything has connected him to this global network of people who are interested in, you know, developing psychic powers and that kind of thing, where he's been fully authorized, right? Like in the sense of, of being given the okay to embrace fully what he's able to do. And, you know, Ed's lab tested, right? Like he's gone to a University of Virginia. They actually, it, it, up at the University of Virginia, the folks um, 
built a chamber to test his his abilities um, at the Monroe Institute, uh, which is like this copper lined hallway where they can they can actually measure his his electromagnetic output. And so he's I mean he's lab tested as being capable of altering his uh, his body's electromagnetic output in a way that's fairly extreme. And, you know, this was, his mother was a faith healer. He was authorized to a certain extent through his relationships as he grew up. But locally, you know, people still sort of looked at him like the witch, right? Like the weird guy who could move stuff with his mind and who said he could call down lightning and stuff. And now, because he has this, you know, access to the internet and he can communicate, he's been given the okay and to develop it and to, uh, you know, sort of run with it, right? And so I think that, uh, you know, this re-enchantment thing, it's, it has so much to do with relationships and developments and, and really the concept of authorization because all of these communications and conversations and, you know, different groups that people can align with and that, and the media that's, that's put out, the ease of creating something like a podcast, you know, that can, that can focus on this stuff and these topics and normalize it in a way that was never possible before. While Celeste, Maude, and Mana Aelin were here in Somerset last summer, experiencing all the fucking weirdness, and were gracious enough to let us interview them for season two, they described how magic and enchantment became such a significant part of their lives. Yeah, I like was <laughs> I was formulating my answer in your head as you were talking, and. I was going to use the metaphor of like the lens, like to me, witchcraft or magic is the lens through which I view the world. But lens sort of implies that you can like take the glasses off at some point, you know, and you can be like, cool, I got my witch lenses on. I'm seeing all these synchronicities and I'm seeing this weird shit happen. But like, maybe I can go home at the end of the day and take my witch glasses off. And then I just become like, you know, for a while I was a a college English teacher. I've worked in retail. I was like a marketing manager and like a fashion company. And that was like a part, a point in my life where I was still practicing magic. I've been practicing magic since I was like 14 years old, but witch goggles on, witch goggles off. But at a certain point, the witch goggles have become sort of like fused to my face. And now I think even if I wanted to take them off, I don't know that I could. And I had this crazy experience, you know, not that long ago, like a month and a half ago. I was one of those people who thought like, I don't really need to do a bunch of protective work. I just don't think it's that important. And I had this experience that really taught me that that was not the case. And that if you start putting the call out, connecting to that current, making yourself that light, things will find you. And you can talk to as many people as you like who can give you some love and light bullshit about like spirits all good and everything's fine. And like, you know, you just create that shit for yourself by believing it. And people will tell you like, if you do protective magic, you will experience negative things because you are putting out into the world that you believe that things can hurt you. Well, I am a living testimony that that's not true because I did nothing of that ilk. I was like, I don't need to. It's fine. If I don't engage with it, it won't find me. It fucking found me. And that was a moment, you know, a month ago, I've been practicing my whole life pretty much where I was like, I want to take the witch goggles off. This was a frightening experience. It sucked. I felt deeply unwell. 
it destabilized me. I don't want to do this. I was like very close to taking all my occult books and throwing them in the Mississippi and saying like, walk away, back to marketing manager territory for like two days until I restabilized and was like, no, actually this is, this is really just who I am now. It's become like part of the DNA. And I don't think that it could go away if I wanted it to. You're going to find particularly in traditional witchcraft, which is what I have come to understand the, the current of what I practice. I think that's how you could best categorize it. There's this idea of the witch blood. The witch blood is like a very divisive term because there is sort of a like almost eugenics implication of anything when you talk about something being passed down in blood. Even though we know that things like epigenetics exist and that trauma can be passed down genetically, there's still this like strange idea when you bring blood into it, I think. But witch blood, at its core, the concept is not you know, it's it's not a racist concept at its core, but unfortunately a lot of these ideologies get like twisted and manipulated by people who want to use them for shitty shitty ends, right? But the idea of the witch blood is that you do have something innate that's different about you. And there's different origin stories for where this comes from. There's like certain subsets of the community that believe that witch blood comes from angels mating with humans at some point and creating Nephilim. There is fairy law reasons for why witch blood exists and they will say that like true witches you know if you really truly are a true witch by blood that you have fairy blood all these things are things that truly like 12 months ago I would have heard any of this shit and been like that all sounds crazy and I don't believe it but the more I walk down this path the more I'm like I don't know <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think about the best way to start that because, you know, the way it is now and the way I used to connect with magic is really different. Like, I personally think that there are there are people who dabble in magic and that's totally fine. But there are some people that it really does become ingrained in everything you do and there's much more intention behind everything and... At the same time as well, like divination isn't inherently witchcraft. Uh, if we're going to go that route with magic, because I'm, I'm not a ceremonial magician, but I do. It's, it's hard, especially if you work in this field. You're, you reflect your friends and the same goes with you reflecting kind of spirit allies or different associations that you have with different types of practices and so it affects you and personally now I'm at a point where there isn't really anything that I do in my life or that will appear that doesn't have some type of connection or association even if I do something that's supposed to help ground myself such as like have a job that's like not inherently uh you know, podcasting, esoteric podcasts or um, doing readings professionally or anything like that or spiritual art. Uh, let's say I go work at a restaurant or something. It still kind of weaves its way back to it because then suddenly I'm putting specific oils on before I go to work to protect myself or I'm putting an oil on the bottom of my feet to get more tips. Uh, like all things like that where it's like I, I can't really separate it. And even now it's like I can't travel 
the same way I used to. Like, I used to just throw barely anything in a bag and then go off somewhere. And now I'm checking for, for four days. I have to check a suitcase because I have too many candles and oils and all these things to like establish a presence wherever I am because you become increasingly more sensitive as well. And this is one thing that people don't talk about a lot, especially when you get more over into the witchcraft corner. No matter, like whatever tradition it is, if you're going to take on the mantle of a witch, you are putting a call out through like to spirits and people and whatever, and you just have a different type of attention on you. So some people will be like, well, I don't need this type of protection. I don't need this type of working or I don't experience that. And they probably don't. But if you're, you know, dipping your hand in, you can only dip your hand in ink so many times. You can only walk through the liminal space, uh, ride the hedge, whatever it is, um, tune into things before your hands will start to stain when you stick, when you stick them in the ink. And so now it's like traveling is just a lot more revolving around how do I protect my car? How do I protect myself? How do I do all these different things knowing that you have a different light on when you walk around that signals different things to people? And that I think this question too, even if whether you're talking to people who are just interested in occult phenomena or not necessarily practitioners or ceremonial magicians or people who practice voodoo or obeya or uh, different types of folk magic, Italian folk magic, and then maybe traditional witchcraft, you're just going to, I think, get a different answer because it really does, I think, like fundamentally change your view of the world as well. And I personally am at a point where I can't separate, I can't turn it off or on because the times that I try to pretend that I don't need something at this point because of what I've put out into the the net, put out with these strings and cords that I've created, I the feedback I receive is just different than it used to be and I have to be aware of that. Much of what Matthew Bird and I talked about during his interview involved personal folklore and histories, especially when you grow up in the country in the Bible Belt, which we both have in common. Interest in strange stories or magic meant you were dabbling with the devil. But that same magic that was seen as coming from the devil often had roots closer to home. And Matthew related the story of what happened when his mother discovered that he was practicing magic and how that magic was really an extension of his own family history and different aspects of magic that were already a part of the community. Look how it's viewed. My mom, when she found out that I was no longer following the Baptist faith, she says, I'm really, I'm really concerned about you. And I didn't know you were into that witchcraft. And I was like, mom, what am I doing? And she's like, well, I, I don't know. Are you, are you worshiping the devil? And I'm like, no, I'm not worshiping the devil. This is what I'm doing. I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. 
your father was a Freemason, which was the basis of a lot of the things that I'm reading about right now. My grandparents did this. My grandparents did that. I said, your mother bought my warts. And when I explained it to her that way, she, it, you know, it kind of clicked with her. Intuition is also a significant part of the way magic, enchantment, and synchronicity seem to function. And Samuel Corwin realized this during his close relationship and collaboration with publisher of The Weird, Adam Parfrey, who embraced all things strange, shocking, and fringe. I mean, do you feel, does it feel weird to you that, I know that, that you're meeting with Parfrey was weird, right? The fact that you live next door. But does it feel weird, but also strangely like auspicious that you're involved in all of this? Yeah, yeah, I guess it does. And it's 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 really hard to to tell where I factor in. You know, I've always um, wondered that, and especially that Adam brought me on to help with the project of writing his memoir. I guess I'll, I'll just relate this dream I had because I think it's relevant in at least the kind of uh, archetypal, uh, more Jungian like way of looking at this. You know, the that there's a greater narrative at play and there's 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 meanings and coincidences that we might never be able to parse out. But I had this dream and it was like days before Adam died and we were both on top of a pyramid and it was missing the capstone he we were both sitting up there just um stacking stacking bricks or, or sta- stacking pieces that we knew would um finish the the pyramid and we weren't saying a word to each other it's like he, he would hand me a piece and i would know exactly where it went and i would hand him a piece and then he would he would know exactly where it went and we were just silently completing this pyramid and it was just it was the most beautiful dream because it you know kind of uh, encapsulated how I feel about working on this book um, is I don't know where you know it leads me but I just follow my intuition and and intuition le- always leads you to the right places and it you know leads you in weird places that that cause these kind of connections that seem too good to be true I guess and uh, Adam did that his whole life his his life story is made up of those kinds of interactions and it's like a, it's like a lesson in um you know just going with your gut and 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 acting on it i think is the big thing because a lot of people won't they'll stop you know they'll they'll have that gut feeling but they won't take that first step and uh because this path is super weird and um you know there's there's a lot of things that'll get you tangled up and you know confused and spinning but I think in the end intuition always leads to clarity and understanding at least I hope Interacting with and navigating the phenomena, without a doubt, changes you 
and changes the way you interact with the world. As Darren Mason explained in his interview, once you interact with the magic and enchantment of the phenomena, you can't go back to seeing the world the same way you saw it before. It changes you and it changes your reality. It's really challenging to try and understand what the motivation is for whatever is engaging with people and and, and, and pushing them down these avenues. You know, and, and it's like each time you come across um, an odd synchronicity or you lift up another stone and there's just like a whole freaking another rabbit hole down there, right? So it, it, it's very hard to quantify that for other people, you know, because you can't really share... Or, or, or translate kind of the emotional like holy shit moment you get you know when you when you uncover those things it, it, it's not directly transferable sometimes it, you can package it up in a, in, a, in a reasonable way but it's hard it's re- to really get the resonance of like no something something I don't understand is happening around me you know and, and I'm trying to navigate it but through the navigation my view of the entire world and the and what reality is is the boundaries of that are falling away you know and that's that's an extraordinary thing you control society through its narratives you know one of the things that we have constantly is is we have the archetype of the hero of the superman or the superwoman right that solves the problems they solve the problems we have this the individual who is godlike you look at the marvel films you know, that's not telling you anything about community. It's telling you, you essentially you're powerless and you need kind of a sun god to solve your problems. That's basically what it's saying, right? So, you know, that and that goes back to, you know, like a, a warrior archetype, a warrior tradition, right? It's a very different view of, you know, an agrarian society, of one that is in... In a, in a mutually beneficial relationship with with landscape and place, right? You know, it it, it sets up conflict, arch villain, arch hero, and we're all the little shit munchers trying not to get killed. <laughs> you know, that's that's what it's playing out as. It's taking away individual power through those narratives. I think it's very difficult, you know, um, because of where we are in the West in terms of. We're in a we're in a cultural decline cycle, you know. Um, there's a, a, a an Irish philosopher called John Moriarty, who I'm a big fan of, and he essentially said we need to return to dream time. And dream time, he meant it very much in the Aboriginal sense. You know, he 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 meant. I'm not going to try and paraphrase him because I'll just fuck it up. It's like somebody retelling a comedian's joke. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah, that's a good joke, man. Yeah, fucking hell. How I see it is that we have the the, the two kind of main ways of, of of framing or understanding your world. You've got logos and you've got mythos, and logos has had supremacy uh, for a very, very long time. And within logos, you don't have room for enchantment. It's pushed away past the borders of logos within mythology and the mythos you do dream and enchantment are as valid and as important as everyday 
your waking experience or the banalities of 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 your life dream and enchantment are 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 equally as important if not more so so i think that's where we are, are are at is that we have the decline of logos and then we have a society that doesn't ha- have a dream that doesn't understand enchantment right you know and it's about making sure that we are you know we collectively have that risk those of us who are on say the kind of the 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 front line of this or like the we're, we're the kind of the vanguard of it you know that that we do that bit of stewardship and we do that bit of of of, of guidance and community like i said it's like when you have that that kind of you the, the the fascists take root and sort of open that university don't firebomb it open the anarchist bookshop across the road but fucking great coffee that they do an amazing student discount. That that's that's how you defeat it. Give the dream, give the the, the seed of, uh, like create that great protein, that 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 healthy, beautiful soil, uh, that hummus that the seed can take root in, you know, and has the best chance of, of, of growing, you know. Uh, and I think that's our collective responsibility. And I think that's how we combat fucking terrible ideologies. You know, that destroy worlds, that destroy everything. Stephanie Quick is a writer and esoteric researcher of a wide range of Fordian and magical topics. She's also studied and tracked synchronicities for almost two decades, trying to understand the nature of that phenomena and her own experiences. During her interview, she and I discussed engaging the outside world and the necessity of looking at the phenomena and enchantment from not only your own perspective and experience, but also from other perspectives through collaboration and by being part of a collaborative and inclusive community. It really reminds me a lot of um, Colin Wilson, the writer because he would talk a lot about how um, it's easy, like if you're a magician or uh, even just becoming a famous person, if you become, I don't want to say, if you rely on the outside world to uh, come to you or to uh, provide you with stimulation so that you're not bored or to interest you, you know, you can become very jaded. He had a friend who became a very famous writer in like the 70s or something and this friend was telling him how um, he had a lot of groupies and at one point he was involved in a, a sexual encounter with seven women and he was bored right now obviously this is a problem with <laughs> with this person's uh, attention <laughs> and ability to engage with, <laughs> with the outside right um, so Colin Wilson was saying you know he has the philosophy that you need to always um, cultivate your own ability to pay attention, to uh, direct your attention to whatever is outside of you, and to uh, uh, really engage with uh, your surroundings and uh, with your interior life and feed that energy and that attention uh, and will it. Um, and then 
you know, you will kind of kick over into, you know, everything becoming like supercharged with meaning and um, brightness and, uh, you know, giving back to you uh, this attention that you put into it as opposed to just kind of like passively waiting for the world to uh, entertain you as, or maybe uh, seven groupies. <laughs> I can't imagine. But um, I thought it was a funny example. But it's like you're saying, and that's what I love so much about uh, Penny Royal, the first season and how you wrapped it up, which is if we uh, give our attention wholeheartedly to the outside world and make a good faith effort to, you know, really uh, explore these things, then, you know, you can, you can just more and more just opens up. It's pretty phenomenal. There are these patterns, but they're kind of just like a little bit out of sync enough and a little bit off to the side enough that you can never quite get it all at once. Um, and there always seems to be having this uh, feeling of like the, the shadow versus the earth. I, I'm more like the image of the yin and the yang because they're creating each other by their interaction. And as an observer, like you were saying, you can only be observing your side of it to an extent and catching a glimpse of the other side. So it's almost like I think that this is where working with other people and in groups is supremely helpful. Everyone can kind of look at part of it and kind of hold the space for one another. So you can get more of a feeling for the whole, the more people that you have, because, you know, you may not be able to see all of it, but you can see your part. And then, you know, if you have more people, they can see more different parts of it and kind of start to form a whole. It's like the whole idea of a multidisciplinary approach in science, right? Where, you know, if, if someone's, uh, you want to learn about birds, right? You have, you know, people that will observe the behavior, people that record the songs, uh, people that will look at the uh, physiology of the birds uh, on the physical level, uh, people will study their migrations and the mechanisms that they use for orienting themselves in time and space right and even uh you know I'm, I'm a bird watcher and if you have a bird festival or a bird conference there's you know very much an interaction with art you know for uh illustrations for field guides or very often art pieces um, because that way you can convey more accurately than in a photograph uh what are the field markings that can be used for identification and then uh you'll have a scientific uh information about birds that informs you know for example art pieces that are talking about bird song or things like that so there's a lot more i find even in some of these um, multidisciplinary or uh, scientific approaches or academic approaches you have a lot more uh, free-flowing kind of inspiration and ideas between the scientific and and the various scientific disciplines and uh hard sciences and soft sciences and, and art and education than in a lot of the para-weird stuff where I think some people tend to be more, you know, I just want to be nuts and bolts or we need to only look at this from like the uh, paranormal angle. There's no uh, physical, they don't want to get into the physical stuff or then everyone gets worried about magicians or artists and, you know, heaven forbid you start to mash it all together. But, 
but I think you could learn a lot about, you know, just approaching things from a lot of different perspectives. Joshua Madeira is an occult technologist and techno-occultist who uses art and technology to explore the great work. He and I discussed the connection between cybernetics and magic and how reflexivity and circularity are essential parts of the interaction with the phenomena. It all feels like magic because it's how magic works and how enchantment works. What seems like the other isn't always the other. Sometimes it's just you and the system you create. He also explained how it isn't necessary for there to be some golden eternal chain of being in order for us to explain what's happening in our own lives. Intentionality and direction and steering. You know, what what do we want and how do we get it? And what is the best course of action to take, both practically and morally? Cybernetics is very much about those kinds of questions. And I and I love I love cybernetics, but I also love a more post-human philosophy than cybernetics admits to. And while cybernetics can appreciate the cybernetics of non-human systems, including other animals, but obviously also machines, uh, I think that cybernetics tends to be a little more anthropocentric than I'd like. And I think, you know, it both things can be true, right? Like, it, we can ask ourselves, what do we want? What is good for us? Uh, what do we desire? How do we get it? How do we get it without, you know, being an asshole to other people? And, and we can have this level of conversation and, and planning, but we can also at least try to, it's difficult. I don't know, you know, as, as humans, as human beings and experiencing life as human beings and having everything that we experience at least physically filtered through the lens of the human. You know, I don't know how, how much we can get outside of our humanness, but we can at least acknowledge that there is something other there and and I say reach for it <laughs> I I I say reach for the inhuman reach for the the posthuman reach for the other reach for the strange including becoming a stranger to oneself perhaps uh, Felix Guattari you know he he's talking about um, uh, Nicholas Lumen's uh, sociological theory of autopoiesis, which of course is informed by Humberto Maturana and Francisco Varela's uh, theory of autopoiesis in, in living things, and, uh, and Lumen extended that to the social domain. And I mean, apropos of, of strange and paranormal phenomena, there's a lot of things I think we could explore there. But but I think in in one of Guattari's books, he he said, and he said this in the third person, I'm going to paraphrase it in the first person because I think it's more, I think it has more impact, more affect that way. 
But he said, you know, like any autopilotic machine, I can die for want of sustenance or drift towards destinies which make me a stranger to myself. And I just always thought that that was just a very, very beautiful sentence and idea. And of course, Maturana and Varela's ideas had a lot to do with drift and, you know, um, and that's related to my interests in chaos magic, you know, a lot of Western magic has developed out of a, a kind of cosmology and mythology um, where the world was created by some kind of divine being having a divine plan and everything is evolving toward something. There's some kind of telos that is happening and I embrace the ideas of Darwin and Maturana and and folks who have uh, and, and and maybe Lovecraft, you know, folks who have who have more of a cosmology about a world that is adrift, that is constantly emerging from these complex interactions. There's no divine plan to it. There's just all of these different feedback loops all over the place that are informing uh, how things emerge and arise. I, I don't know, that just, that kind of world just seems to make more sense to me than one that, uh, you know, than one of a, a eternal golden chain of being You know, of course, the relationship of the magician to the world, the, ma the relationship between, you know, the, the microcosm and the macrocosm, the idea of the universe as being a living thing and, and how we interact with that. And, you know, not just a living thing, but a, a whole ecosystem of living things that probably extends far beyond what we currently think of as being an ecosystem of living things with various kinds of intelligence or consciousness or yeah, emotion of course what i'm what i'm describing right now is very animistic but you know i think magic is not always animistic but it often tends to be uh it in practice if not in theory but also, you know, the, the idea of, of intention and of attention, right, attention, and what we put our intention on and what we give energy to and how that affects things that we interact with and how those things in turn affect us. And, and there's another loop. Just like when you're driving your car and, you know, most of us have experienced driving for some time, thinking about something else and then suddenly realizing uh, like, oh, wow, I just went through, you know, this whole span of highway and, and have no memory of it because I was thinking about something else and I was automatically piloting the car. There's two magical things related to that. One is the idea of trance and how we can 
get into a trance, including the trance of driving, and that facilitates um, thinking about other things other than what is immediately present. Complementary to that, and sort of contrary to that, the idea that that our attention does tend to determine, to some degree, sometimes a lot of degree, where we go. Right? You know, as you find with the you know the mysteries of Somerset, Kentucky, and you know, the, as you start to look at these things, things, features of what it is that you're looking at come to light. Um, they become apparent to you. I mean, that's 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 kind of magic 101, right? Is like pay attention to what you want. If you, if if you want to manifest something in your life, if you want to make some kind of change, then pay attention to it and uh, and and maybe visualize it in a different way or or see a different possibility than the status quo and then give that energy and give that your attention and um, of course magic is full of these various tricks and mechanics for for quote-unquote charging these things with our energy or our intention or our will or whatever again i think the language of this stuff is is really quite bad <laughs> um you know i i think that the the common parlance of, of magic is is wanting but such as it is it, it's it suffices to that we can have conversations about these ideas and we can know we can agree that you know we're we're talking about something similar and we can have an exchange of ideas with one another but but yeah i think i mean a lot of what you were talking about i think is is present in in magic essentially essentially all i'm doing is 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 inviting synchronicity right i'm i'm just trying to create a space of possibility where synchronicity can happen you know that that can happen as well with a digital tarot deck as a physical tarot deck but also you know all other kinds of ways of sorting things and assorting things and arranging things and reading things so um, that that in itself is generative and it, it, it allows me and other people and folks like yourselves and to create all kinds of different ways of doing divination and I think that you know going back to the mathematics of this and talking about you know Shannon's work and entropy and information theory and stuff I, I think that that is a space that hasn't been explored enough and I'm, I'm really glad that you guys are, are working in that Penny Royal started out as an investigation into stories I had heard about unsolved murders connected to a strange cult here in Somerset, Kentucky but it became a story about the magic and mystery of place specifically this place and how the relationship between people and place produces folklore and reveals the spirit of that place. And the further along this road we've traveled, the more personal it's become. It's impossible to not become part of the story 
a part of the thing that you're observing. Before we started the penny roll investigation, I'm not sure I believed in magic. Everything that has happened since has changed that view. Now I believe. Now I know magic exists. And whatever this phenomena is, the culmination of all of these synchronicities and events and transmissions, whatever it is, it seems to want us to believe in it. The interaction with the phenomena gives it definition. The observation of the phenomena gives it definable edges and a shape begins to form. Is this phenomena an entity? Is it a group of entities? Is it a discarnate intelligence or communications from something in another dimension? A sentient cybernetic information structure? If it was fairies or aliens, it would be easier to explain, easier to understand. But it appears to be stranger and weirder than that. There are elements of magic and enchantment to the phenomena. And I think that means that it's more about encountering reality in a novel way rather than encountering some entity or intelligence. Trying to define the phenomena as an it is part of the problem. It isn't an it at all. The phenomena isn't a thing. What's happening and unfolding and presenting itself has more to do with the relationship between reality and the observer than anything else, at least in what we've experienced. There's something to the relationship between reality and the observer and circularity that's baked into the core of the phenomena. It's highly interactive when engaged, but the response appears to evolve based on how that engagement occurs. And these responses don't seem to be limited to our conventional understanding of time and space and cause and effect. We still don't have any idea what any of this means. Murders, cults, anomalies, meteors, monsters, alien intelligences, secret societies, occult groups, clandestine agents, corrupt politicians. Portals and hundreds of synchronicities haven't gotten us closer to any greater truth. And trying to create a narrative structure that presents this story as it is, how it began, what it led us to, and how we've been terrified and changed and inspired by all of it hasn't been an easy task. And I'm not sure we've been successful, but it's earnest and it's from a place of curiosity and wonder. Years ago, I wrote a story about a group of characters in a European city standing at an intersection when two cars suddenly collided. At the moment of the collision, these characters, each from a different nationality and culture and language, all witness a miracle at the same time. The exact nature of the miracle is never revealed except that it involved 
the car collision. And the story follows the characters over the next 24 hours as they try to continue on with their lives after seeing what happened. These characters repeatedly cross each other's path, sitting beside each other on a bus or the tram, or standing in line at a restaurant, or even sleeping beside one another in bed. They witness the same miracle, but they can't share it because they don't speak the same language. They tell each other the same story, describe the same event in their own tongue, not realizing they shared the same experience. The audience, the reader, is the observer who pieces it all together, who understands all the tongues, all the languages. That's how interacting with this phenomena, with this mystery feels, and how it feels to try to communicate the experience of synchronicity to someone else. We're all speaking different languages, different tongues, but telling the same story. The Global Consciousness Project and the Princeton Eggs are really what started us thinking about the connection between synchronicities and randomness. When a synchronicity occurs, when something significant happens, does that event cause a decrease in randomness in the immediate area? Do things temporarily become more predictable? Do the odds of that event happening again increase? And do magic and enchantment cause a similar decrease in randomness as evidence of the influence of the will on reality? And following that same line of reasoning, could there be a relationship between randomness and divination? If so, could we build a device that could track the relationship between randomness and the effect of the supernatural on reality. Well, Darian did create such a device, which for the last year we've been testing in experiments in our Liminal Lodge research group. We've been testing it during seances, channeling sessions, and paranormal investigations, and even placing it at the center of magical rituals to see if we can detect an effect on reality evidenced by a decrease in randomness in the local area, or even globally. Whatever has been happening, whatever this phenomena is, the spooky synchronicities and seemingly mystical connections between people, events, and actions, it all appears to be an essential feature of this thing, which implies that there's some structure to all of it. In his book, Decoding Reality, Vladko Vedral puts forth the theory that matter and energy aren't the building blocks of reality. He and other scientists believe that the basic building block of reality reduces down one more level to information. His book argues that, quote, information and not matter or energy or love is the building block on which everything is constructed. Information is far more fundamental than matter or energy because it can be successfully applied to both macroscopic interactions such as economic and social phenomena and information can also be used to explain the origin and behavior of microscopic interactions 
such as energy and matter. Vedral also argues that information in contrast to matter and energy is the only concept that we currently have that can explain its own origin. In order to understand more about the phenomena and what the Penny Royal Mystery might ultimately mean, we were being pushed toward new ways of understanding information, observers, and randomness, all of which were essential ingredients in the recipe for enchantment and magic. Abracadabra! Penny Royal is written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging.